Welcome everyone to the Unbalanced Note. We have a wonderful episode today. I'm Brian Kluger and I'm joined by my host that I want to go into a Cybertron war with for life, Mark Chafferdini. How are you doing, man? Uh, I'm, I'm always good talking to you, Brian, and uh, I really have to put this plug in. Uh, there's more to me than meets the eye. You may not know me as well as you think you do, but... We'll, we'll see about that. We're going to see you right on this episode, which is a very special episode. We have a excellent musician, composer, music arranger, intercontinental champion of music, television, and film, Alexander Bornstein, all the way from the West Coast, Los Angeles. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're so good. We're living in this heat. We're living in this time, you know, but we're, we're still watching all the good stuff, the TVs, the movies, the music, the scores. Uh, we're going to get to your latest, uh, your latest composition, Transformers War for Cybertron on Netflix. But first, first, I want to ask, we want to start at the very beginning. Where did it all start? with you in music did it was it something you heard something your parents played where did it all begin for you uh it starts probably when i was like very young maybe six or seven maybe younger um i was obsessed with the music from uh, back to the future and i probably shouldn't have seen it but uh robocop the main theme <laughs> from, from robocop um you know i was caught in that middle ground where like they were marketing robocop to kids they really shouldn't have been, but they did it anyway because there was the cartoon series, and I think that's how I got, if I remember right, that's how I got looped into it. Um, but for whatever reason, like, the music in those movies just kind of, like, pushed through everything else going on and just, like, really spoke to me. And so then I, when I figured out that you could buy soundtrack albums with music from the movie on a CD and you didn't have to hear anything else, um, that was kind of it for me. And so I was, I grew up listening to film music, uh, and it's just been like a lifelong uh, passion ever since. But I didn't actually start studying music until I was a sophomore in college. All right. So, well, first off, with RoboCop being mentioned, that was actually filmed in Dallas. You know, it was supposed right. to be the city of Detroit. Yeah. Filmed in Dallas. Wonderful. Um, but moving on to that, uh, did do you remember like your the first instrument you picked up and started playing? I, uh, I took a couple of years of piano when I was about eight years old, from about like eight to ten. And then I kind of like fell off of music for a long time and I got really into filmmaking. And so I was I was writing screenplays. I was making short films with my friends. And um, I started off in college uh, in film school and kind of kept studying that. And then about two years in, I had been experiment like not experimenting, but I had been working on music on my own just like like noodling at home and stuff like that. But I had always kind of written off a career in music because I was thinking like, well, I didn't start playing piano when I was, you know, still eating out of a bottle. And like, you know, like I have no business, I have no business becoming a composer. Like that's something that musicians do when they start learning at a very young age. But I was lucky to kind of be like noodling around on my own. And I started taking some classes at school and sort of one thing just led to another. And I was like, all right, let me take music theory. And then I sort of kept at it. And then I realized like, you know, maybe a year into that, I was like, all right, screw it. I'm gonna take it an extra year at college and I wanna become a composer. Like I, I can, I don't care if I do it out of a shoebox for the rest of my life, like this is what I'm gonna do. And um, I was just, I was very lucky to meet the right professors at the right time and, you know, uh, go back to, you know, go to grad school for film scoring at, at NYU. And, um, you know, here, here we are, it's been kind of a crazy road. So can you talk about that crazy road and set the stage of you being at NYU, then traveling to perhaps Los Angeles and getting your first job and how that happened? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I had been talking with professors. I've been studying with a composer. Um, I went to my first school I went to was a University of Central Florida in Orlando. And so I've been like working with professors there. I was studying jazz piano and composing. And then I got into, you know, grad school at NYU and it was for film scoring. And I had always kind of been thinking like, I, that's such a long shot to become a film composer. But uh, I got into that program at NYU. So I went up there for two years and started making some connections. And my first summer uh, off from NYU 
I got an internship studying, not studying, but working for uh, Barry McCreary. Oh, we love him. Yeah, yeah, in, in, yeah, in Los Angeles. And so I was, you know, I was like, oh, this is a huge opportunity. So I spent the summer in Los Angeles and that was kind of my first taste of like, oh, okay, I think I understand how this landscape works in terms of, you know, what I wanted to do was finish up at school and then become a composer's assistant. That was where I was seeing a lot of people my age were getting opportunities to start, you know, writing music on shows and, you know, sort of building their own reputation within uh, the community in Los Angeles. So I moved back out to LA after I got my master's and then just kind of bounced around as an intern for a while. I was at, um, I, you know, I, I didn't end up back with Bear, but I ended up at, uh, at Remote Control Productions, which is Hans Zimmer's Ooh. company. So I, w- I worked there for about eight or nine months and sort of like I learned, you know, three years worth of, you know, every like three years of education compressed into about nine months in terms of like the, the, the technology you have to understand and just the, you know, what it means to be a working composer. You know, it's a it's weird when you sort of see the dichotomy of what you think being a composer is like in school versus the reality, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, blue collar craftsmanship work stuff that goes into, you know, doing it for a living versus kind of the more uh, white collar aspect of it that you get in school. And there's nothing wrong with one or the other. It's just, you know, in school, you can kind of, you know, if I'm, if I don't want to write music for a week in school, because I'm just not feeling it, that's totally okay. And that's, that's like, that's what you're there for. You can take advantage of that time when you're doing it for a living, you know, there are many times where I sit down to write a cue for the day and I'm like, this is the last thing I want to be doing right now. Like I am so not in the mood to do this, but they need it by the end of the day. And that's just the gig. That's how it works. Um, So I learned a lot in that time, sort of being an intern and an assistant. And then uh, from Zimmer's place, I ended up working for Christopher Leonard's. And um, then I was his assistant for about, uh, four years before going off on my own and i still work with chris all the time but like just now strictly as a as a composer for for him so it's 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 a it's all these weird sort of random opportunities that pop up and then you just kind of see where they they lead you so um you touched on some of our favorite composers you know christopher leonard's has done um, ride along Hans mm-hmm. zimmer well everybody knows him bear now one of the things that I, i've always been told We've never interviewed Bear, but we're we're told not to ask him how he does get everything done. I mean, he's on TV shows and movies. So are you part of his secret army that gets the stuff done and he just takes all the credit? (laughs) No, it's 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 fairly transparent. I mean, you can look at the credit. You know, if you go into IMDb and look at the music department, I think it's all kind of laid out there pretty clearly. Um, You know, it's uh, there's just it's and everyone has kind of a different function in every camp. So it's like I can't speak. I probably can't say, or I don't really know how Bear gets it done. When I was an intern, I was getting coffee and, you know, picking up sheet music and, you know, like it was a very, um, you know, I had sort of my, my responsibilities and that's, that's what I did. So I don't, I'm not really sure why that's not a, you know, why that's a question that couldn't or shouldn't, shouldn't be asked. That's probably something that only he would, would know the answer to. Um, It might just also be a very boring answer. Like there's so much stuff that goes into getting music done for a show that some of it's very technical and just, you know, probably doesn't make for the best interview. <laughs> well, I, there, there's no mystique or mystery. I was just trying to be a little farcical with this, but, <laughs> <laughs> but with somebody like, you know, Hans Zimmer, you know, he said uh, time and time again that he works musicians hours, uh, nine to five, nine in the evening till five in the morning. So, right. uh, <laughs> so, but trying to get a tune or a cue in by the end of the day, is it just a nonstop grind in uh, in remote control? And uh, who do you think you learned the most from in those eight months? It's, uh, yeah, it's, and I would say most composers, you know, kind of have a similar, I think he, he just gets more exposure because he's been so successful. Um, but his, his insight is indicative of how a lot of guys get the job done, you know, in terms of it's just, a lot of grinding it's a lot of working weekends or you know that that 9 p.m to 5 a.m thing is pretty you know accurate um but i think it's really just about you know knowing how to manage your time and i guess that's you know and i don't mean it in a bad way but it's something that maybe a lot of musicians just don't ever really learn how to do 
Um, and I think, you know, the people that I've met that have been the most successful are really, really, really good time managers. And they can, you know, sort of see the forest for the trees and, and manage all the logistics that go into creating the, the music for uh, for these shows. Um, and I, I think someone who I learned a lot from at Remote in that sense was maybe seeing um, Lauren Balfork. That was really impressive. Uh, Steve Mazzaro had just gotten started there when I was when I was at Remote, and you know he's a really interesting guy and has a really great sort of uh, mindset. And there was who else? Um, uh, Dominic Lewis was also really cool to learn from as well. Um, he was working for Henry Jackman at the time, doing a lot of additional music for him. And uh, now he's he's gone off and has done some great stuff. He does uh, Man in the High Castle. He's done a couple of pretty big animated films. I think he did the last Goosebumps movie. Um, you know, and just it's he's just one of those guys that just like sits down and just like just cranks through stuff. It's insane to watch how quickly they can put stuff together. Lauren as well. He's a very fast writer. Well, one of the things when you are working towards becoming a composer and a musician and learning your craft, you tend to uh, emulate people or you try to uh, learn how someone else does it before you kind of find your own voice. Mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting things about working with these people is when they ask you to write additional cues, they've sort of set the groundwork. And, and I imagine that you kind of have to work within the, that realm. Mm -hmm. when, do, when do you think you turned a corner and started to really make your own decisions and charted your own path? Uh, I think, you know, probably as I, maybe like 2016, when I stopped being Chris, you know, when I, when I finished up as, as an assistant for Chris and just kind of started functioning more only as a, a additional composer. Um, because at that point, you know, even while I would be working for other composers, I was always pursuing work and projects on my own. And so um, you kind of, at this, even though I'm working for other composers, I'm still kind of figuring out my own voice and style and things that I like. But I don't think it really sort of started to make sense until 2016 when I was thinking, oh, you know what, I really do, I like synthesizers more than Chris Leonard's like synthesizers, or <laughs> I like, you know, writing this kind of style more than he does, or, you know, figuring out too, like I could never do comedy scoring as well as Chris does. And I'm just going to go to my grave and I have to be okay with that. <laughs> and just sort of figuring out where my strengths, strengths are. I, I think it probably was about that time. And it was, it was good timing as I was kind of branching out on my own to sort of figure out, you know, these are the things I like, these are the things I don't like, you know, um, and just kind of figuring out like where I fit in. But I think honestly, I probably still have like another 10 years to go before I'll really be able to zone in on that. Like, this is what makes me, you know, me in like a, in a musical, a musical sense. It's a very difficult, it's hard to be self-conscious of your own work in the, the way that you're describing. Um, just because you're usually, you're just going so much all the time it's I never get that that time to really reflect back on the on the work and just be like like you know I wonder you know what is it that I do that makes my my style um, but it's it, even though you're always asking the question it's that that time to really analyze it is uh, fleeting. Well, I can imagine that that might be a little difficult. You know, Brian and I are not in the grind like you are, but you know, you could be let's say asked to do a movie about with a harpsichord and then 10 mm -hmm. years later you're the harpsichord guy like how did i get here i don't even like harpsichords <laughs> you know? it, and it usually it definitely feels like that too where you know uh all of a sudden it's all kind of coming in your lap and it's like it's only when you sort of stop and look back over this period of time and then go oh like i see i see how this this happened now um and it's you do have to the it's a really good question and it's like i wish i had more time to figure that out and spend that time in that sort of self-analytical mindset because I think the the faster you can figure out what those things are and it doesn't even have to be a musical style it can be you know um, a technique that you're really good at or some kind of software that you really know how to use because all of those things help make you a more uh, marketable individual individual which I know is a weird thing to say because like you know this is this is art and we are trying, you know, we are creating, you know, entertainment that is, can be artistic and, and all of that. Um, but there is a very real logistic consideration of how am I going to, you know, 
get a paycheck that pays bills and allows me to keep kind of chasing this thing. I like that. I like that. Um, I want to ask you a little about, because I saw a bunch of your work and it's all really awesome. Uh, one that stuck out at me is that you did some work for the Academy Awards, the Oscars. Oh, that was my, yeah, that was when I was still at Remote Control. So that was okay. that was the year that uh, Zimmer was the music director. And that, to be perfectly honest, that was sort of the prime example of being the uh, the coffee guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did do, I, I did some uh, uh, stem printing, you know, where like someone would finish working on a piece and then I would sit there and print all the individual audio elements that would, that so they can have control over the, the mixing. Um, but that was a great example of sort of seeing, you know, from the ground up how a show like the Academy Awards even gets produced. Um, so that was a, that was about a month, I think, from like end of January to the end of February. It was very, it was the most one of the more intense months of my life, even to this to this day. <laughs> Every time my phone rang, I was just like, oh my god, who's calling? What's wrong? <laughs> What what was that like? Because I guess it's all done live and it has to be perfect. And what what's like the rehearsal like for something like that? Do you remember? Yeah, it was uh, a lot of just running through the whole show, top to bottom. You know, so basically, you know, we we all get into the orchestra pit. I was, you know, very much the gopher. You know, so I'd sit in the back of the orchestra pit and just make sure that, like, okay, does everybody have what they need? Does the guy who's doing sample playback, is he ready to go? Okay, oh, he needs me to go run and do this. Or, like, I had to go get a guitar pedal at one point. Um, I think that was, that might have been dress rehearsal or close to, or maybe it was, like, the tech, the full tech dress rehearsal. And it was basically, like, starting in 10 minutes. And they were just like, we need you to go to Guitar Center and get an Ernie Ball guitar pedal. I was like, okay, and I broke so many traffic laws to do it, and I think I, I think even then I still had, I think I clocked in at like 12 minutes, and so it was like I did the best I could, but like it was a lot of that that kind of stuff. But you know, you would just see it was a lot of rehearsing, a lot of trying stuff out, and then like every rehearsal, some new component would show up. So like you know, maybe by like the third rehearsal the people who are reading the awards now are showing up for the rehearsal. And then by the next rehearsal, now the lights work. By the next <laughs> rehearsal, you know, and then like at the final rehearsal, then like, okay, now Billy Crystal's here to do his, you know, make sure he's good to go. And so like seeing it, you would just see each layer kind of come together one piece at a time, which was cool. No, oh, that's that's amazing. I like, I like stories like that uh, to see like, oh my goodness, this was so intense for a month, but like, no, the audience doesn't see any of that and so that's kind no, of cool you got to be part of it yeah and, and it was interesting too because like by the time we actually got to the live show you know it was like everything just kind of stopped like at that point like it had all been prepped so much that like my my like what we were like 30 or 40 minutes into the telecast and i was just kind of like sitting in the back with like all the other department assistants just sort of like all right i guess we're done <laughs> be going along smoothly so i'm gonna go get a drink <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. And then from there, I mean, you've done so much uh, amazing things, like you worked on Sausage Party, you worked on Shaft, uh, Supernatural, Lost in Space, The Boys on Amazon, Agent Carter. Uh, this is some pretty impressive, pretty impressive stuff. Can you talk a little bit about moving from, I guess, the Oscars and assistants and moving to something as iconic as Shaft, which I love that recent movie, and Lost in Space, getting into the archives of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you know, so those were all opportunities that came out of working with uh, with Chris Leonard's and sort of just being at the right place at the right time. I was lucky to make the jump when I did over to, you know, his camp because um, all these shows kind of started coming his way. And so I started off as a uh, score programmer where that's basically, you know, like, taking the MIDI and just making it sound as realistic as possible, adding a lot of production, and then, um, you know, eventually getting to the point on something like Agent Carter where I was writing full-blown cues, you know, under the direction of of Chris. And he, he's been a great mentor in that sense of sort of, you know, teeing me up for these things when he feels like that, you know, I'm ready for them. And so, you know, with Agent Carter it was kind of getting into all of this kind of jazz and noir stuff, which was super cool. Uh, and, you know, kind of progressing from there on, you know, Sausage Party, which was getting to work with Alan Menken's camp, which was, you know, a crazy experience because that was also on uh, 
We also did Gallivant, which is the, the TV show for ABC um, that he did. And so it was a really neat, you know, again, to sort of see this different perspective of, you know, musicals and how that gets done. And then, uh, you know, Lost in Space was just kind of like a mind-blowing, amazing thing to be a part of because, you know, we recorded the first season at uh, Abbey Road in London. And oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, so, like, it was, um, you know, it was crazy because, like, you know, I, I got to write a couple of, cu- you know, cues for the series. And so, like, just being able to hear music that you wrote being performed in a place like that is is really surreal. And I even got to conduct a little bit on the uh, one of the days of the recording. Um, so, like, it was just, it was everything about Lost in Space is, is great to be a part of. That, that's really cool. And in the Shaft uh, stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, I, how could I forget? Um, yeah, that was. I mean, I because I'm a huge fan um, of the the 2000 shaft. I saw it in the theaters when it came out. And I, yeah, I, it's, um, it's it's just such a great movie, and it was so cool to kind of like come back to that sort of thing at, and actually being contributing to it in this time um, with such an iconic theme, you know. And so like it was just it was fun, sort of getting to figure out how to like you know, what cool tricks you could pull off with, with that music. Right, right. And I guess you kind of, uh, would you consider yourself a jack of all trades in the music, uh, f- the film music industry? Because it's like you're writing, you're composing, you're, you're, you've kind of done it all. I I don't, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I would say I have a pretty eclectic skill set at this point. I think it skews more toward uh, electronic and sort of programming orchestra, <clears throat> orchestral music and a lot of... Uh, things in that style, you know, I think I still could probably, I'm still kind of figuring out more comedy and pop scoring kind of stuff. Um, I certainly can do it. I think it's just, there's a varying level of like comfort, but I, I definitely thinking back over 10 years, it's kind of crazy to sort of see the, the things that I've been able to do that I thought I'd, oh, I'll never figure out how to do that. I'll never know how to do a, you know, any kind of comedy scoring, let alone just a little bit. Right, right. And with uh, with doing this music for 10 years or more, um, are you do you find yourself that you have a proclivity to analog versus digital or has that changed over time? Um, you mean like in terms of like electronics and things? Yes. I, uh, you know, I didn't really get into synthesizers until about like five years ago. And but I think that was when I did kind of realize that like, oh, like anal like there's definitely a certain uh, organic energy to something that's more analog. Um, and I do it like I, 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 you know, bought a bunch of synths and sort of got into that. And, um, you know, I've, I've kind of found a good balance now, like each one kind of has its place. You know, some people are like, oh, you have to have, you know, all these analog synthesizers and all this like outboard gear that, you know, that's the only way it's going to sound real. But honestly, I think the software is so good now and it, it's instant recall and it, it, you know, you can tweak it and it'll remember exactly what you were doing. Um, you know, and especially like when you have to always be able to, um, be fixing and tweaking and, uh, you know, conforming music to different versions of the edit that you're getting as you're moving along on a project, that's a lot more important than, you know, having like the most authentic analog synthesizer sound. So it's, it's, it's definitely like you have to kind of, for me, find a bit of a balance. Like each one has its place. Cool. Well, since you mentioned your uh, your growing interest in electronics, uh, that I think is a good jumping off point. We can jump into uh, Transformers: War for Cybertron. Um, very heavy electronic score. I got notes of uh, Daft Punk from uh, Tron Legacy and, uh, and some really weird instruments you use. I assume that it's all. Um, in electronic soundscape, no live players. Can you tell us how you got on board and what the palette was like creating yeah, uh, the sound? For sure. I uh, I got kind of recommended by a couple people, very fortunately, uh, to FJ DeSanto, the showrunner, while they were doing um, voice recording. And so it was very early in the process, and I think I was just it was kind of like right place at the right time to where I kind of started having this discussion about the music with FJ very early on. And, you know, he he sort of sort of established this idea of, you know, the Daft Punk Tron influence and wanting to go that route, which which is great for me because I love that score, Um, you know. And but, you know, of course, we wanted to sort of do something that's not just a complete rip off of that, because that's that's, you know, the fear when you get too into the world of 
what's influencing you and you know what you want to do um you know so i after i kind of got recommended and i did some demos and got you know sort of brought into the fold officially um you know we decided we would do this kind of very electronic influence score but augment it with weirder solo instruments and solo instrument performances so that there was this weird not weird but it, it's just we were hoping that it's a mix of things that isn't quite as explored as what you would expect from transformers because like the the steve jablonski scores which i love are very you know they're epic and they're huge in scale and they're very orchestral with like electronics kind of almost layered on top as like icing and so we were thinking all right well we're going to go even harder on the electronics so lots of weird process sounds and then rather than make it so orchestral let's do um small solo performances and so the, some of those are live in the in the series so there's like live cello there is a couple of instances of like live violin and they're mixed in such a way that they stand kind of above the orchestral elements because it's it's very hard to do a show with a large scope and not include the orchestra in some capacity because you can still you know you can do big brass chords you can do big sweeping strings when it has to be epic and so we have that palette there a little bit but it is uh it's still midi and, and samples the live stuff is going to be more of the solo textures that you hear and then obviously some of the the electronics are performed with a uh, real synths well you know uh vince decola did the soundtrack to the uh transformers cartoon movie i think it was 1986 mm -hmm. and he had he had uh if you think back to maybe what he did for rocky four taking the baton from bill conti he had a lot of electronic instruments um and it's a good thing you mentioned Steve Jablonski because one of the things that he tries to do now um, is try to take his scores in more of a sound engineering approach mm -hmm. instead of a uh, true composition. So um, were there any uh, any elements that you drew from both Jablonski or Decola or, you know, tr trying to create the, you know, add to this palette to give reverence to older, older properties? We definitely, you know, a discussion that was probably one of the first things I asked because I knew that I was coming into you know I I watched G1 on the Sci-Fi Channel in like 1992 when it when they first had it in their animation block so like I I I was aware that like I was coming into this is a franchise that has a very long history and it has uh, fans that you know have expectations of what they want and so we kind of talked about it for a while and you know what we discovered was that the tone of this show is not like other Transformers series that came before it. And so what we decided is that I think in terms of referencing stuff that's come before, I think hopefully you can find that in kind of the electronics and sort of the some of the old school synth things that are in there. But we did kind of take a conscious step in a different direction, hopefully to sort of let the series kind of stand on its own um, in terms of like the the canon, not the canon, because obviously this is a different canon, but the the sort of history of all these Transformers series that are out there. Even, you know, we listen to the Vince DiCola stuff. We listen to the the Robert Walsh and Johnny Douglas scores from, from G1. And, you know, I kind of pushed things probably in more of a, I think, like you said, Daft Punk, Tron, Vangelis, uh, and then even a little bit of, I think, like to a lesser extent, Jerry Goldsmith in terms of coming up with, some principal themes that then get developed in ways that uh, are specific to the characters and their situations. That's what he would do on like Star Trek Nemesis is that there's basically the, the main Star Trek theme and then the Shinzon theme, which then get developed on their own merits as it pertains to characters within, you know, the situation of, of the story. All of that to say, we did not kind of step into sort of the more sound design aspect of scoring that you might hear in some more modern Jablonski stuff. My my goal, and hopefully fans agree, is that I wanted very clear thematic devices in the series for the Autobots, Decepticons, Cybertron, the AllSpark. You know, these are clear melodic things. And you'll hear the, the Autobot theme is very specifically repeated at every time you hear the end credits. 
No, and I, I like that aspect of it because, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Star Wars. Whenever you see Darth Vader, you hear some version, whether it's a big orchestra or a little piano of do, 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 do. So I like that you brought that kind of element in there. Yeah, it's it. And, you know, the trick was kind of not becoming overwhelmed by the just the sheer volume. There's so many characters in the show. I think the original temptation was to, OK, well, there's got to be. The Optimus theme, the Bumblebee theme, the Leto One, Ultra Magnus, Mega, like, and then it starts to become, you just don't have time to establish all of those themes in, you know, a six episode season. You have, you know, a 22 minute episode. And so then that's sort of when it got scaled back. And so then the first, the three primary themes I ended up with were Autobot, Decepticon, and Cybertron. And then there's one... Uh, there's a sub theme set up for different characters as well, but probably the most important one is uh, for Alita. Can Can you um, describe? Because one of the things that Brian and I saw in the uh, the preview content on Netflix is it's called the trilogy, the the War for Cyber War for Cybertron trilogy, and then you see Siege play as the subtext before each episode starts. Mm-hmm. So there's six episodes in what it looks like the first season. How many are there going to be? How how was this broken out to you? And do you have an end game in sight? Yeah, there's we, you know, and I probably can't get into too much detail, but I can uh, but I can definitely sort of lay out the the game plan is that you know, we've been talking about all three chapters from the first day that I came on to the show. Um and so, but it, yeah, it's basically the three these three chapters, you know, which are getting broken out into these uh, these different episodes. And so the idea is when it's when it's all out you'll be able to watch all three chapters as one continuous story about the, you know, the Transformers. And so the what the first chapter that's coming out on July 30th will be called Siege, and then chapter two will come out at some point, and that's going to be called uh, Earthrise. Okay. And the tone of it was really pretty serious. Brian and I were talking about this, and, you know, it gets very political, it gets factiony, and, you know... You, you have Star Starscream's voice, which sounds reminiscent of the very first uh, Transformers series, but it just took a real. It took the things that we were used to seeing and just felt made it feel more adult. Uh, what was your take on that? Yeah, the um, the voice director of the show made a very good analogy where he was saying that his, you know, his hope for the show, and I think you know, FJ would hopefully agree, or at least I, I think he does, um, is that you know this show will make adult Transformer fans feel how they felt watching G1 as kids. Suffice, like, basically what, you know, in the sense that the way you felt the stakes of G1 as a kid of Autobot versus Decepticons, this series is updating that so that you can sort of appreciate the show again as an adult in terms of this conflict between these two two groups. But the idea was to really make it, you know, it's a serious unironic approach to this show you know but at the same time like the 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 models of the characters are based off the toys so it's not like it's so deathly serious that you know you're going to feel depressed walking away from it like there's still hopefully an element of fun and sort of this action aspect of it too where it's it's walking this line of like it's serious it's not you know i think um Something like Cyberverse, which is, I think, aimed more towards, a, you know, a, a younger demographic. I think this show skews and hopefully a pretty wide range of people that will will enjoy it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing with, uh, the, I guess, my takeaway is that you see a lot of thought processes happening in Megatron. Of all people, Megatron has mm-hmm. got a lot of weight on his shoulders and the, just the amount of, uh, of, of emotion he kind of puts in his decisions. I mean, there's a point where he says... I need to ruminate on this or something like that. He couldn't make a decision at that point. It just, I don't know. There's just, it tries to, like you said, put a lot more depth and uh, uh, really grow up these characters and make the adults enjoy it. Yeah, hopefully. And I, and I like, and I like that about, you know, where it goes because it doesn't, you know, it's not trying to, to say that anything that Megatron does is good per se, but it, it does sort of give you a moment to just see that like, the thought process of like he's not quite the insane mega mega uh, I can't say the word mega mega yeah. Anyway, he, it's we'll been, edit it out. Yeah, it's been a long morning. Um, 
he's not quite the insane leader that we see in G1 yet. He does get pushed to this point, but it's the way that people like Shockwave and the way that people sort of like he is the you sort of see this road that he goes down. And I think it is it's it's neat to kind of see that layer get added to something like uh, Transformers. Totally. Very cool. And uh, when you first got this project and you were working with your collaborators on this, uh, was your first take on uh, this score uh, kind of with how much of that transpired to the final product or was it changed quite a bit or was it like the original vision still there? It's it's pretty close to my original swing, um, which is a very rare thing to happen as a composer. It's kind of why it's a big reason why I'm I'm really excited for the show to be out there. Excuse me, and for people to uh, to see it because it it a lot of things that I took kind of some swings on, where I thought there's there's no way this is going in the show. There's no way I'm gonna get away with this. And then it, they would be like, Yeah, we love it. And it'd be like, Oh, cool. Then yeah, that, that's it. Um, you know, I think the first pass of themes that I did for Autobot Decepticons and, and Cybertron, um, you know, I, my only real pushback was just adding more electronics and add, and going for a little further down the, the synth route, which I'm never going to argue with. Um, so that was that was kind of a shift there. Um, but the the end the end credits of Siege are taken directly from my my theme demo for the Autobots. Um, so there's a nice, it's a very good reflection of kind of what my my gut reaction to the music uh, should be. Awesome, awesome. Um, well, I, let's get into some fun questions right now, some fun <laughs> questions for you. All right, first off, fun question. What is your most thrilling music experience, both as a fan and as a performer? Hmm, uh... That would probably be the Abbey Road sessions that I talked about at, for Lost in Space, when we like getting getting to conduct, and then when when Chris did his update of the uh, John Williams theme, that was that was pretty cool to hear. That that is awesome. And when you were at Abbey Road, did you do the Abbey Road uh, picture walking along the crosswalk? <laughs> no, I refu- I refused. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I saw it. I walked I walked across for posterity, but I'm like I don't need the. It's I'm good. <laughs> Nice. nice. All right. And um, so you are um, uh, you're a collector of records, LPs, record albums. I, I looked at your um, at your Instagram, and I I, I seats that RoboCop original LP press, and I seats it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what is the what is the most curious, the strangest recording you have in your collection, both? in uh, LP form or something that you've recorded as an outtake or something like that? Oh, that is a good question. Um, on vinyl, probably it's, uh, I have a an LP of themes from the Godzilla films from the Japanese composers that I picked, I actually, I picked it up when I was in Japan. Oh, uh, that's awesome. I'm a, I'm a, I was a huge, I am a huge Godzilla fan. Yeah. So um, I was like on the hunt. It was one of those that like if it's like that rare record store experience where you're like, all right, I'm going to go look for this one used album. No one's going to have it, but I'll at least pretend like I'm going to find it and I'll just go buy it on eBay. But I can at least say that I went looking for it. And then like the second store I went to, they they had it there like mint sealed. And I just went, oh, that's it. I'm done for the day. Is that what you did? Because when I that happens to me, I like squeal like out loud. I'm like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Well, it was uh, it, the the vinyl store I was in. Uh, it's it's something that's really cool about uh, Japan is that like record collecting is still a really big thing. Like and collect even CDs. Like so, when you walk in, it's like a library. So it's like I had to kind of like suppress my my excitement because I was just like, okay, good, I found it. I'm gonna go buy it and just like try not to freak out right now. <laughs> and so you're a big fan of Godzilla. Do you have that amazing Criterion uh, set of did, the Godzilla? Yeah. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? The artwork, yeah. all of it's great. Oh, it's it's it was so it was I uh, I I pre-ordered. I was like somewhere random when they announced it, on, and I was like on on my phone, and I'm like trying to place an order on their website on my phone. It was like the big. It was the most complicated thing in the world. But I'm just like I need my what? I was just like standing in a corner somewhere, just try, trying to get because I couldn't get to a computer. 
That's great. And uh, so you said that what really got you into music was Back to the Future and you love Godzilla. Do you ever find yourself maybe trying to do your own version of the RoboCop, the Back to the Future or Godzilla scores or add anything to it? I like noodled around a little. I remember I did a uh, I, I did a James Bond cue once where I was just like, what could I do with the Bond theme? And, and you know, it's uh, with Back to the Future and Godzilla, though, even and RoboCop, there's like a certain part of me. It's just like I don't want to I kind of like that. I don't necessarily know what makes those tick. Like I, I it would feel like I, I'm trying to, like, figure out uh, like the magic of it. And I, I and I wouldn't want to to do that so i've never really tried messing around with those themes too much all right no i was i was curious because I, I love both the robocop theme and the uh and the back to the future theme and all that stuff so oh, i was always curious yeah. if you do yeah they're 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 really cool um certainly if i were hired to do something that would be a different story but on on my own it's kind of like eh, i i feel like i'm not worthy to do it <laughs> odo you're worthy you're you're worthy <laughs> Well, do you know that, um, I'm sure you do, but it's worth stating that uh, Alan Silvestri got to use the Godzilla theme in Ready Player One, as well as little hints of Back to the Future. So, uh, Yeah, that was, uh, that was re- I forget where what I found out, but like that was honestly a big reason for me to go see Ready Player One, was when they were like, oh, he uses the Godzilla theme <laughs> here, and there's a, there's a big, Someone was like, he uses Back to the Future. I don't want to tell you when, but he does. And it's like, All right, well, I, I have to see how he does this. Because it was, it was it was super cool to see or hear it, I guess. Well, um, one of the difficult, problem, uh, difficult uh, endeavors for any creative person is uh, trying to persuade somebody to buy into their, their gear, their equipment, their ideas. Uh, usually you have to come 90% just to get the other person to come 10%. Mm-hmm. So you talk about doing demos. What is the most extensive demo or the most amount of work you've done just to get a job? And did any um, miss the mark or did you land every single landing? Uh, I probably, I can think of some instances of, um, you know, writing probably like five to 10 minutes of music, like like a score for a project, like just like, and it was usually, this tends to happen more with like, some uh, indie films that I've done where you'll, you'll write and create a lot of content for them to sort of sift through and sort of see how it sticks in the film. And then you just kind of like, there's just this mutual, eh, this isn't, you know, it's, it's like almost like dating in a sense where you just get this. It's like, yeah, you know what, this isn't not, we're not, we're not gelling here and it's just not going to work. Um, so those are instances where it's a little, you know, frustrating, but you know, where you do put in a lot of man hours and then it doesn't really add up to a lot of stuff in, in return. Um, but I've, I've been lucky in, te- in terms of like, usually if, I, if I'm demoing for something, I, I've got a pretty good shot of, of getting it, um, you know, because at, at that point, the discussions have progressed far enough where they feel comfortable kind of letting you start working. Um, and that was, that was what was cool with, with Transformers was that it was a very organic process of like, oh, someone recommended me, um, you know, I meet with them on the phone, we meet in person, you know, back when you could still do that. And, uh, you know, I submitted some demo materials and like, oh, yeah, like we all just click. This is going to be great. Never mind that it's for this huge franchise and this huge property. Um, And that was that felt very I kind of kept waiting for that other shoe to drop where they're like, all right, they're going to make me do all these demos. And, you know, there's going to be all this stuff to go through. But really, it was just kind of waiting for them to, to get the animation ready. It was a very it was surprisingly easy. Excellent. I'm glad it worked out because, uh, like you mentioned, the the intro cue, the I really like the end credit cue, and it's great to find out that that was one of your first at bats. So, uh, oh, thank you. Hit, you I think you hit a home run with this series. Can't oh, thank the rest. you so much. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I would like to ask <laughs> a fun, another fun one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would uh. What's your favorite, if you ever watched it, pro wrestling, what's your favorite entrance theme to a pro wrestler, whether it be Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Undertaker? And if you were to create a a music composition for a pro wrestling character, what would it be? (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I'm going to really out myself here just as like a fun little sidebar. I have emailed Jim Johnston. Yes. Uh, yes. I love him. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is I was in middle school when I did, but um, so I, I do know, remember a lot of those themes. Um, I really did like uh, Undertaker's theme, like his, his the one that he used in the like 
before the Ministry of Darkness. Okay. Um, that I really like. It was just so it's so weird because like there's so many of those themes are like up tempo. Like even the ones he would use after that were so like, all right, you gotta amp the audience up. We gotta get them ready. That one was so like oddly stoic for a wrestling theme. And so I really, I think I really do. That's one that I still think about to this day. Um, but I'm trying to, I feel like I can get more detailed though. Um, <laughs> just cycling through. Because a lot of those two were like uh, stock music tracks that like that Johnston didn't compose. So like like I remember like the Hardy Boys theme was it was like some immediate music or extreme tracks thing that they just threw together. But uh, probably Undertaker's or Chris Jericho's theme were like I thought those were really great great ones. And then for if I was going to compose one, I don't know. That's that's really tough. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like I'm so I'm so like. Like, yeah. would you go like full rock and roll heavy metal or would you go full orchestra or a little mix of both? Probably it would probably skew more towards rock just because I feel like that's that tent in like an arena that will just always cut through. So like maybe it would be some kind of like trailer type of music where you've got like, you know, heavy rock and roll elements, but it's also got like this kind of hyped up orchestra sound sort right. of like, kind of like that kind of a mix. Like it'd be fun to do a wrestling theme that sounded like uh you know, something from Inception or something <laughs> or something from um, like Pacific Rim, you know, where it's, just yes. like, it's like a little bit of a little bit of attitude, but there's still like a, a an orchestral component. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I love you're a wrestling fan, too. Chris Jericho, break the walls down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, so what are some of your favorite music moments from movies that have always stuck with you? I know you mentioned, you know, maybe like the the back to the future or robocop theme but is there something like that really just resonated with you from long ago that's always stuck with you or something recent yeah um the sequence in star trek the motion picture when kirk flies by the enterprise and it's like the six minute sequence with just music there isn't even sound effects it's purely it's a completely music motivated sequence um that to this day still blows my mind in terms of just a composer getting that kind of time to just sit there and write this beautiful piece that kind of sweeps and, you know, keeps building and building and building. And it's just a guy flying around in circles in a ship. Um, you know, the, I really like it when music gets that chance to kind of tell you what's going on in the story uh, narratively and really take part in that. Um, I think that's a great one. Um, I still think to this day, the score from Crimson Tide is, is just, it's insane to me how that, you know, the scene when um, they're all trying to get the radio back and they're like about to launch all these nuclear missiles. And it's just the the way that score brings up the tension incrementally through the whole film is is it still blows my mind to this day. And then for a recent example, it's probably uh, some like uh, Arrival or Sicario, which are both by Johan Johansson. Like those those are like scores were like in the theater I'm like actually getting pulled out of the story because I'm just like, oh my God, this music is so good. And it's doing, it's, I just never in a million years would have thought to do what he's doing. And it's, but it's making the story so much more engaging. Excellent, excellent choices. Love it. Uh, well, you use the term noodling uh, a lot, and uh, that leads me to believe that you do like to do music stuff when you're not uh, on the clock. There's, a, there's an expression that cobbler's kids have no shoes. So <laughs> what do you like to mess around with on your off time, should you have any? And um, the follow-up to that is when you go to see a movie, when you're excited about the new Sylvester score or something, mm -hmm. do you listen to the music before or to, to try to familiarize yourself with it? Or do you like just let it fall on you organically in the theater? If it's something I'm excited about, I'll probably check out the score if it's available beforehand. Um, I usually, I can't help myself. Um, it's I'm guilty of it too. Yeah, like it's um, I think that's probably why something like Arrival and Sicario jumped out at me as like recent examples because they weren't scores I checked out beforehand. I kind of experienced them in, in the moment of seeing the film, and you know maybe that's why they had a bigger impact because I didn't I didn't know what was coming. Um, but I I probably like if it's a new Alan Silvestri score or a new Zimmer score or um, you know something like that like our even another example was uh, oblivion 
you know, like I, cause I, you know, I liked M83 and I knew that, you know, I had listened to stuff that Joe Trapanese had done at that point. And so I'm like, Oh, fuck, like, I'm going to like this no matter what, if, if Trapanese is involved and he's working with M83, if it's half as good as Tron, then this is going to be a, you know, brilliant. And so I listened to that before I saw the movie and it was, you know, I was, it was just as effective in both, in both realms, but yeah, I like to, you know, I'll listen to music when I'm not, you know, working, um, you know, and then if I'm like noodling with stuff on my own time, it's usually like sound design. Like I did a lot of that for Transformers. Like I came up with custom sound patches for different characters on some synths or I came up with, uh, you know, I like would try taking the transformation sound effect and like chopping it up and seeing if I could turn it into sort of like a, you know, uh, a drum loop of some kind, you know, so there, it just kind of create this sort of continuity almost between the sound design and the music. Um, but yeah, it's like, I like kind of just experimenting sometimes with different, you know, sounds and instruments and things like that and just sort of see like what you can, you know, stumble onto. I was studying cello for a little bit, but I haven't had any time to practice, which is a bummer. <laughs> well, that, that's a great answer. And speaking of Joe Trapanese, Brian and I interviewed him before the 4th of July. So oh, we nice. We talked a lot about Oblivion and his other projects. So. Uh, we can send you a link or you could just check out our pages. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, no, I've, uh, I almost ended up working for Joe, uh, like back in 2012. And so like, he's, he's always been a, like, every time I've interacted with him, he's, he's awesome. So I'll definitely check out the interview. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Alexander. Uh, this was an amazing show. We loved having you on. Thank you for having me. This was great. Uh, everyone, check out Transformers War for Cybertron on Netflix. Check out that score. Um, is there any chance that the Transformers soundtrack is going to be on vinyl and LP? Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, ho yeah, hopefully there will be something. Word. And is there anywhere you want to tell our listeners to find you? Yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Bornstein Music. Um, my website, www.alexanderbornstein.com. Um, and yeah, hopefully, you know, uh, please watch the show. I hope everyone likes it. And fingers crossed there will be a soundtrack to go with it. Yes, yes. And send him uh, pictures of RoboCop and Transformers mashups. He likes oh, them. Oh, please. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's our show, The Unbalanced Note.